Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the director of the Foreign Policy Studies Program here at Cato. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you here to our event today on developments in Iraq. Um, we're hearing interesting and somewhat sad things from Iraq. Uh, well over 1,000 casualties already this year in the continuing violence in Iraq, depending on whose figures you credit. Um, there are hawkish congressmen who are calling the decision to remove U.S. forces from Iraq the greatest foreign policy error uh, in modern U.S. history. Uh, some others would say perhaps the invasion itself warrants that uh, label. But we're here to discuss the developments going on both inside of Iraq and with respect to Iraq's engagement with the United <clears throat> States and American engagement with Iraq. Um, we have a very uh, diverse and interesting panel uh, to discuss these subjects today from a variety of different uh, angles. And I'll introduce the discussants uh, in the order in which they'll speak. Douglas A. Ollivant is the senior national security fellow with the New America Foundation. He's a retired army officer who was also director for Iraq at the National Security Council during both the Bush and the Obama administrations. Previous to working at the White House, um, he served in Iraq as chief of plans for multinational force, uh, uh, multinational division Baghdad in 2006-07, leading a team uh, that worked on the Baghdad portion of what became known as the Surge. Uh, Olivant's currently the senior vice president of Mantid International, I hope I pronounced that correctly, a uh, global strategic consulting firm, and he holds a PhD in political science from Indiana University. Uh, our second panelist today is Harith Hassan, who's a contributor to Al Monitor and to the Al Alam newspaper in Baghdad. He was a political advisor in the Iraqi embassy in Washington, D.C., a deputy uh, chief electoral officer in the Electoral Commission of Iraq, and also an assistant professor at Baghdad University's College of Political Science. Uh, he holds a Ph.D. in political science from the Santana School of Advanced Studies in Italy, uh, and a and master's in political communication from the University of Leeds in the UK. Uh, the final discussant uh, is my boss, and not coincidentally, a splendid fellow, Christopher A. Preble, <laughs> who's vice president for defense and foreign <clears throat> policy studies here at Cato. Uh, he's the author of three books, including The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. And for our purposes today, it's probably relevant that he was the lead author of a 2004 remember the heady days of 2004, report titled Exiting Iraq, How the U.S. Must End the Occupation and Renew the War Against Al-Qaeda. Um, he was also a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy in a vastly, uh, uh, in a prior life, let's say. <laughs> and he holds a Ph.D. in history uh, from Temple University. So with that, please join me in welcoming our first uh, discussant, Doug Oliver. Uh, thank you for all for coming today. Uh, I see some other people with uh, real Iraq expertise here in the room, and I, I look forward to their comments uh, once we get into Q&A. Um, and I, I want to thank Chris for putting this together. I'm going to make a, a few quick introductory points. I don't want to take too much time on the podium, because uh, I think we'll be better served by conversing among ourselves and with our audience. So let me just do some stage setting. First, about violence in Iraq. We need to remember that what is happening in Iraq is primarily um, violence by the terrorist group formerly known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq, AQI, which has now morphed in 
some form to what we call ISIS or ISIL, the Iraqi, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria or Iraq and the Levant. And this violence is primarily directed against Shia civilians. Now, there are other flavors of violence. Um, we have neo-Bathist parties in Iraq that are part of the violence. We have other targets of ISIS, the government security forces, the more moderate Sunnis. But primarily, a, you know, some percentage of the violence, it's hard to parse, but well above 70%, is from AQI, ISIS, and directed against Shia civilians. And that's important for us to remember. This is not primarily groups of Iraqis fighting each other anymore, as we had in 2007, 2008. This is primarily a radical Islamist terrorist group killing Shia civilians almost exclusively with car bombs. We do have low-level background violence, of course, that occurs. Iraq remains a violent place, and to say that this is just a terrorism problem uh, is not true. But we need to keep this in perspective. Um, according to the Iraq body count in 2012, before the Syrian war really, really kicked up, there were about 4,400 casualties in Iraq, a country of th about 30 million people. As I like to point, this compares disfavorably with the 500 murder victims that occurred in the city of Chicago with a, its 2 million population. <clears throat> so we need to keep in perspective what the background violence is in Iraq and how much of this is terrorism related. Second point. While the government of Iraq is not perfect, it is not causal of this violence. Um, there are lots of factions who would like to blame all this violence on the Shia government, on Prime Minister Maliki in particular, on his policies towards the Sunnis. Lots of people like to describe the Sunnis as disenfranchised, although that's not true. Iraq is one of the countries in the region where the minority sect actually does have political rights, the rights to vote, the right to hold government offices, uh, the right to be in the military, and so on. Um, you can look at other countries in the region and see that that's not true for their minority groups. But again, while the government of Iraq has not been perfect, and I'm not here to endorse or give uh, credence to all their actions, it's simply false to say that that's causal. We could remove, you know, take our magic wand, remove Maliki from office tomorrow, put in a prominent Sunni figure like Ayat al-Awi or Salah Mutlaq or one of the new Jafis, make them the prime minister, and this would impact ISIL's calculus not in the least. They would continue to send car bombs against Shia civilians because they want a radically different system in Iraq, and simply putting some Sunni in charge would not satisfy them in the least. Third, I think it's important to remain to remember that there are trends in Iraq that, that counter this violence, that there are sources of order inside Iraq that are actually uniquely encouraging. One, of course, remains the oil. It is hard to talk about Iraq without talking about its hydrocarbons, without talking about its oil. Um, in some senses, of course, a resource like this is a problem. We all know the term resource curse. But on the other side, Iraq has the resources, the funding source, to do all kinds of things that it needs to do to one day, as it stabilizes, um, develop a more diversified economy, and in the short term, simply to buy its way out of problems. 
Um, this is a time-honored tradition in the region. If you're having a problem, you give a leader of this group money, and money can be used to diminish violence and buy political allies. Second, and uh, a little less sordidly, there is an emerging democratic tradition in Iraq. Now, we have not seen this at the central government, admittedly. The politics in Baghdad are messy, they're ugly, <clears throat> primarily because we have three divergent groups with very, very different interests, and it's very, very hard for them to find common ground. However, in the provinces, we've now gone through two successful electoral cycles where ballots are counted, the vote is rather uncontroversial, people who were in power, lose, who tried to get another term, do not succeed, are ejected from office and go back more or less peacefully to what they were doing beforehand. Um, for example, in the province of Basra, before the 2009 uh, provincial elections, Badia, the Islamic Virtue Party, um, was the guy, they had the government of Basra, was the governor was from that party. The 2009 elections saw a state of law, Maliki's party, win the Basra elections and they provided the governor. And then in the 2013, state of law lost the elections in Basra, and there is now a governor with a uh, party called the Citizens Alliance, which is affiliated with ISKI, the party of the Hakims. In all these cases, the, the prior governors are, remain in private life. Uh, I believe both of them are still in Basra, although I'm not confident of that. Um, and, and certainly other people in their, uh, in their political circles are. We have had peaceful transition of power at the provinces, not once, but twice. And uh, this should give us hope about the future of democracy in Iraq. Um, so what do we need to do? And what can the United States do? Which was one of the questions we were presented with. Um, I think we need to look at, uh, we need to acknowledge that we need to support Iraq against, against external forces while acknowledging that there are difficult, difficult politics in the country. First, we need to acknowledge Iraq as a fellow victim of al-Qaeda terrorism. Um, Iraq and the United States have the dubious distinction of being the two countries that have suffered the most from al-Qaeda terrorism. Uh, well, Syria now clearly joining that group. But, um, we need to acknowledge that that's their problem, and it's not a dissimilar one to ours. Second, I just mentioned Syria. We need to acknowledge that Iraq is also a victim of fallout from the Syria problem. I'm not here to say that I know what should be done in Syria or that I could have done better than the current government, but that doesn't change the fact that we can all acknowledge Syria is a mess and it's bleeding over into the region all around it. So what can we do? We can sell arms to Iraq. Um, this has uh, all types of, of virtue. One, Iraq needs these weapons against al-Qaeda. That's very, very clear. Um, we had Deputy Assistant Secretary McGurk testify to the House Armed Services Committee last week, I believe, that Iraq has flown its lightly armed helicopters against ISIL bases in the Western Desert and they have um, high-powered, long-range machine guns that they use against these lightly armed helicopters and have shot them down and have uh, wounded and even killed some of the crew members that we spent a lot of time training. They need better weapons to fight against this type of foe. This has two other virtues. We need to give Iraq more weapons so that it can stand up to Iran. We've been concerned for a long time about Iranian influence in Iraq. 
heart of the issue with Iranian influence in Iraq is that Iran is incredibly militarily superior to Iraq. Um, we've been complaining about overflights from Iran to Syria over through Iraqi airspace for some time. When you speak to the Iraqis casually about this, their, their question is, what do you want us to do? Throw rocks. We have no air defense system. We have no air force. Now, you could ask them to very kindly not to fly aircraft through their airspace. But you know, in international diplomacy, you don't ask people to do things that you can't back up with force if required. In the United States, we ask people nicely not to fly through our airspace. Implicit in that is if you fly through our airspace without permission, we're going to send F-16s out to force those planes down. Iraq does not currently have um, this luxury. Um, if you look at the recent military balance sheet that was produced by CSIS um, and shows the Iranian and Iraqi balance in, for example, tanks prior to the US invasion, prior to 2003, and shows it now, Iraq and Iran were more or less at parity with a slight Iraqi advantage before the 2003 invasion. Today, there is a huge Iranian advantage in conventional military power on that border. And to think that that does not influence the politics um, is simply folly. And finally, uh, America selling weapons to Iraq um, has the added benefit of supporting our defense industrial base during what is clearly going to be a coming lean period uh, for the industry. Um, we're going to need that industrial base again someday. It would be nice if someone could keep it open for us uh, in the meantime. <laughs> Finally, what else can America do for Iraq? It can help integrate, continue its integration into the region. The region continues to be suspicious of Iraq for a whole host of reasons, the, the, uh, primarily because it is a state that is clearly run by its Shia majority and other states in the region see that as a uh, meaning that they're an Iranian proxy. We can talk about how much of that is true, but we can certainly help to change that reality and work to continue their integration into the region as a fellow Arab state. Note that in neither of these cases have I implied that the United States should give money to Iraq. The Iraqis are pumping plenty of oil. They have plenty of money. They don't need ours. Nor have I said that American military forces should return to Iraq. Both those things are and should be off the table. The Iraqis do not need American money. They neither need nor want American troops back in Iraq. We can do lots of things short of those two uh, going either of those places, sending taxpayer money to Iraq or sending American forces to Iraq, both of which um, have the virtue of sharing the fact that they are neither a good idea nor politically possible. And with that, I will pass on to my colleagues. Thank you very much. Thank you, Douglas, for the excellent presentation. Thanks, Chris, for the invitation. Uh, pleasure to be here. I will uh, address three main points in my presentation, <clears throat> focusing on sectarianism, uh, Maliki, and the upcoming election. The reason I want to speak about sectarianism because since I arrived to the United States, I noticed that there is a widespread misperception of what does sectarianism mean in the Iraqi context. And actually, this misperception is common even among Iraqis themselves. 
So in this time when we all agree that there is a heightened sectarianism in Iraq and the region, it's difficult to find Iraqis who will define themselves as sectarian. And when Doug was talk, uh, talking about the three divergent homogeneous groups, uh, I, I look at this as an outcome of the type of political system that has been established in Iraq since 2003, not as an eternal fact or as givens. But politically, what we see happening uh, today in Iraq is a result of what I call politicization uh, of sectarian identity. It is an outcome of political, social, and cultural transformations that strengthened and over-politicized sectarian identities. Many can be blamed for enforcing these transformations, uh, Saddam's regime, oppression of the Shia majority, the exclusionary policies of Maliki's government against the Sunni minority, the simplistic, uh, the U.S. simplistic narrative of Iraq as a country divided into three different groups. And this narrative was driven by the idea that Iraq is an artificial state. But uh, in dealing with this idea, there was a system established in Iraq to perpetuate this artificiality. Because if you look at the Iraqis as just three uh, divergent uh, sectarian and ethnic groups, then the very idea of Iraqiness stopped being uh, existent. The narrative of uh, Shia-Sunni divide was particularly destructive because it neglected many common characteristics of the Arab Muslim society of Iraq. They are all Arab, they are mostly Muslim, they speak the same language, they have the same culture, and most of them have a sense of Iraqi nationalism. The problem is that everything was done since 2003, whether intentionally or unintentionally, aimed at reinforcing this divide. Even though the constitution doesn't mention the words Sunni and Shia, except in the prelude, it was interpreted and practiced in a way that institutionalized sectarian differences. And as a result of that, it allowed political elite to focus on identity politics rather than a sort of citizenship politics. This could have been avoided had the political process emphasized uh, the fact that Iraqis are all citizens of one country. The problem with identity, identity politics is that it is usually leading to victimhood politics. Sectarian hatred and conflict are usually based on simplistic narratives of victimhood. So one additional mistake that we have to avoid doing here is by playing the game of who's the victim and who's the victimizer. Because in such a conflict, the majority on both sides are victims of violence and abuses. But also in such contexts, those who have the power, not all, only the power to govern, but also the power to initiate solutions, 
must hold most of the responsibility. So Shia Islamists after 2003 found sectarian politics very useful to build a strong constituency. Most of those groups and figures, including the Prime Minister Maliki himself, had no significant constituency when they returned to Iraq from exile. And they needed to create this constituency. So they resorted to the identity politics, emphasized Shia historical victimhood, especially their operation under Saddam's regime. And their discourse stressed the right of the majority, the majority defined in sectarian terms, to rule the country. The majority victimhood subsequently led to the minority victimhood. <laughs> As a reaction, Sunni Arab community witnessed in the last few years what I called process of Sunnification, through which they started to feel more like Sunnis and to act more like Sunnis. And there is a new political elite, a Sunni Arab elite, that is also trying to build a constituency by using the victimhood politics. For the first time in Iraq's modern history, there were, in, in, in the one-year protest and sitting uh, in the Sunni areas, there were uh, speeches by Sunni clerics and leaders talking about the grievances of Ahlul Sunnah, the Sunni community. This is unprecedented in the Iraqi history. Uh, traditionally, the Sunni community of Iraq identified itself more with Arab nationalism or tribalism. Uh, <clears throat> Maliki's attempt to exclude and sometimes arrest even moderate Sunni politicians like uh, the former uh, Minister of Finance, Rafael Isawi, did not help in appeasing these feelings. Not to mention the more systematic abuses by security forces and the failures of the justice system that is today witnessing practices akin to what used to happen under Saddam's regime, such as torture, random arrest, raping, lack of fair trials and corruption. And here I refer you to the last report of the Human Rights Watch on Iraq. The Islamic State in Iraq and the Sham, ISIS, and other radical Sunni groups are in much need for such an environment of mistrust and the state's failure to grow, to grow and commit more atrocities. Another factor must be recalled here. We are not talking about sub-state communities isolated from their regional surrounding. Actually, transnational sectarianism has been growing since the Iraqi war and was intensified by the Syrian conflict. Sectarian groups on both sides don't re recognize national borders or the legitimacy of existing states. Therefore, they deal with Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon as single geopolitical sphere of conflict, which in, in fact corresponded with Iranian Saudi competition in Iraq and the Levant, where there are weak states and deep sectarian divisions. The attacks by radical Sunni groups against Shia civilians in Baghdad reached today their highest levels since 2008. 
And the more the government failed to protect its citizens, the better is the chance of Shia paramilitary groups to be reactivated, which will be a reminder of worse years of Iraq's violence in 2006-2007. The question is not should or, not or should not the Iraqi government fight ISIS, but it is how to do so. Most Sunni Arabs do not embrace ISIS. In fact, Sunni groups try to distance themselves from ISIS to the extent of claiming that it doesn't exist or it's just another Iranian tool. If we recognize this, we understand that the solution is to keep fighting ISIS and at the same time trying to win over the Sunni community. The problem is that the political elite have no real interest in bridging this gap. Maliki, for example, has an interest today in mobilizing Shias behind him and inciting their fears. This is not to decide, uh, this is not to decide whether Maliki is, is sectarian or national, nationalist. Positions on identity change depending on where you stand up. And in the case of politicians, on what position is more politically awarding? Maliki moved from his nationalist discourse of 2009 to become a Shia hardliner due to the nature of political conflict in such a polarized context. Today, his coalition state of law is far more Shia than any time before. It consists of some of the most sectarian and pro-Iranian groups, such as Badr organization, in addition to the undeclared alliance with another pro-Iranian paramilitary group, Asaib Ahl al-Haq. These alliances will make it even harder for him to reposition himself again in the center and following a more inclusive and reconciliatory policy. From electoral perspective, he's doing probably the right thing. But from state building perspective, he's only perpetuating social divisions. Having said that, we should realize that even with the heightened sectarianism, there are significant divisions within each sectarian community. We saw in these most recent operations in Ambar that Sunni rivalries and conflicts between Ambari tribes have confused many people about what the situation there. Provincial sentiments are strong that even with this tension, it is difficult for a single Sunni group to claim sole communal representation. The same applies to Shia politics. One of the most significant dynamics in the upcoming election due to take place in April will be the rivalry between Shia groups, especially between Maliki and his contenders, mainly Amar Hakim and Muqtada Sadr. This is why Maliki is trying his best to weaken uh, his contenders. He feels that it will be much harder than any time before to secure their support. In fact, Sadr is running in this election with one single objective in mind, no third term for Maliki. Iraq today is a deeply divided country. 
violence escalated inequality and the quantity to reach its highest level since 2008. Corruption is rampant. The government does not accept responsibility for the deterioration. And oligarchic authoritarian Iraq is emerging amid this chaos. We are back to the legacy of a renter state dependent on oil production and exportation in which the elite control resources and run the country through a mixture of patronage politics and coercion. Institutions were weakened. Such a uh, judiciary is increasingly controlled by the government. So are the most in independent institutions, such as Integrity Commission, Debatification Commission, Media and Communication Commission. In fact, Maliki has built a shadow state that is based on personal loyalty and patronage. Because there is a lot at stake in the upcoming election, if it's going to, to take place, it might be a very dangerous election. Already the, the season was opened by the assassination of a Sadrist candidate. However, this might be the only opportunity remained to save what can be saved. to reach a new compact that appeased sectarian fears. The legacy of Maliki's eight years makes it difficult to achieve this objective if he stays in power. While Maliki must not be blamed for everything that went wrong in Iraq, his departure and the way it will be managed is going to be the main challenge for Iraq's fragile democracy. Many here in the United States tend to say that U.S. lost leverage in Iraq. This might be partly true. But the picture from Baghdad is slightly different. Iraqi politicians still seek the U.S. support. And recently, most of them visited Washington and tried to use these visit, visits to score uh, points in their internal politics. Also, many in the US saying, are saying that we cannot enforce democracy there. I totally agree. Nobody can. But they end up with the wrong conclusion. Let's support the status quo. There is no status quo in Iraq. Militants just recently tried to attack the only safe and fortified area in Baghdad, the Green Zone, in the last few days. And they are publicly threatening to invade the Green Zone. Like it or not, US-Iranian direct, direct cooperation might help pushing Iraqi elite to agree on new rules and to play within those rules. So I conclude with one statement. In Iraq, the choice is not either democracy or stability. It is either both or neither. Thank you very much. Thank you, Harith and Doug, both. Um, as I expected, um, the, the 
good news about going last in these presentations is also the bad news, which is what I thought I was going to say uh, I'm, I might not. Uh, let me just say that this, this whole event started as a kind of a very accidental. I bumped into Doug at, a, at an event across town. He mentioned that he had a piece forthcoming at Foreign Policy, and we were going to meet over coffee or lunch or whatever to continue the discussion. Well, now we're meeting. <laughs> the good news is you guys all get to have lunch, too, with us uh, after, and, and you get to listen in on this discussion. Um, and I'd never met Harith before today, but he came very highly recommended, and I, I see why. He understands Iraqi politics very well, as I knew he did. I had read the article that you had written with Emma Sky in Foreign Affairs. Uh, and some of what I'm go I, I am going to say picks up on that article, which I understand is a year old. It was written over a year ago. Uh, and I'm curious about what might have changed since then. Um, but I am just going to raise two questions. And, I, and these are actual questions. A lot of people raise questions for the purposes of answering them. But I'm actually asking questions because I don't know the answer. And I'd like to learn. Um, the first we have touched on, I think Doug engaged it most directly uh, with near the end of his remarks mentioned it too. What, if anything, can the United States do about it? This I have written a little bit about. There was a proposal, I don't know how serious it was, that Senator McCain put forward last month that he thought that uh, President Obama should send uh, uh, General Petraeus and former Ambassador Ryan Crocker back to Iraq to help with the violence problem. Uh, I was skeptical at the time. I'm even more skeptical now, partly because I think Doug's presentation does put the violence in context, but it also uh, cor I think correctly, and again, maybe I disagree a little bit, but correctly characterizes the violence. This is not primarily sectarian violence driven by the dysfunction or worse of the Iraqi government. This is terrorist violence. And so if the, the logic of sending Petraeus and Crocker to Iraq is to somehow get Maliki to do the right thing, then that's not going to work. That's not going to resolve the violence. Now, it may help down the road, which you've alluded to, this could get worse. Right, But for the time being, it's not going to have much of an impact. But I'm also skeptical because, candidly, if you look at the amount of leverage or influence the United States had over Iraqis up to and including Prime Minister Maliki, when we had much more direct levers in the country, not the least of which is about 160 or 170,000 US troops, um, and he did not do what Americans wanted him to do, okay? Sometimes he directly went the other direction. Uh, and, and I think we have to keep that in mind. Um, so I'm, I'm a little skeptical about the amount of leverage we have today. But, I, but Haritha, you raised a couple good points which I had not considered. And I, I want to emphasize one, is that the fact that the United States and Iran are perhaps reaching some sort of a a place where we can have a conversation that perhaps makes things kind of adds to the urgency of the Iraqis who, uh, uh, and I think that's a very good point. That's something I hadn't thought of before. Um, the other question, though, to, to sectarianism, most of your presentation addressed this, Harith, is that it was not always the case that Iraq was going to be divided as it, as it is now. Um, but I really wonder how to undo that, right? It's one thing to observe how it was in 2003 and how it is now. Um, and I'm a historian, so I, I'm okay with engaging in counterfactuals or just studying the history of it. But it doesn't really tell us how we get out of the current 
situation uh, if we agree that while the violence mainly right now is terrorist violence, there is always the danger that sectarian violence could return like it was, was at the worst stages in 2006 and 2007, and we obviously don't want to do that. So, for example, this is one of the passages from your earlier article that I, that I picked up on. You noted that in the 2010 national elections, most Sunnis voted for the Iraqiya electoral list, a coalition that defined itself as non-sectarian and was led by a secular Shia politician. But given the turn of Iraqi politics, Sunni leaders seem likely to run on one list with a platform built around Sunni grievances in this year's election. Now, again, you wrote that a year ago, but January of 2013. So I'd be curious, again, in the interest of trying to stimulate a conversation here, I'd be interested if you want to kind of flesh that out a little bit or revise it, et cetera. Um, I also think I expected this to happen. I think we did get into it in some detail, so I don't really want to go much further. Um, you know, is the problem Maliki? If the problem is Maliki, what's the alternative? Um, in listening to both of you, uh, I, I'm in the distinctly uncomfortable position of here at the Cato Institute favoring term limits, at least in one instance. Um, but obviously that's not the case in Iraq, and Maliki could, in fact, stand and be elected for a third term. Uh, but, I, and, you know, I, I, I think we agree that that isn't going to solve the problem one way or the other. There's more to it than just him, even if he hasn't been behaving in a particularly, um, uh, for his own personal reasons, political reasons, make, might make sense, but isn't necessarily in the interest of the Iraqi people uh, and Iraqi unity. So the other question which I had planned to, to uh, engage if I uh, didn't address all the things that they've already covered is far more speculative and even more dangerous, uh, perhaps, and that is, um, did the United States make a mistake in trying to establish a democracy in Iraq? Okay, again, we can replay the history here. Now, Harith, in the very closing, your very closing statement, you said no, right? There is only one. There is there is either democracy or or chaos, right? There, and and that's a that's a very strong statement. Um, but for those of you who aren't entirely convinced, perhaps, we have to keep in mind that it was not always the intention of some of the leading advocates for the war with Iraq to move forward quickly with a, with a democracy. Um, and I go back to a story, you can imagine I've read a lot of books on Iraq over the years and, and many more to read, but one of my personal favorites is, is Fred Kaplan's book, Daydream Believers, and he talks about an episode in February 2003, actually two separate occasions in the span of about a week, uh, where Secretary Rumsfeld and a few of the folks in the Pentagon around him had planned to install a group of Iraqi leaders handpicked by Americans. They were going to be led by Ahmed Talibi and a coterie of, of, of uh, kind of loyalists. And Kaplan writes, here, though, Rumsfeld's plan hit two roadblocks. The first, unexpectedly, was President Bush. At an NSC meeting in February, this is February 2003, a few weeks before the invasion, Douglas Fife mentioned in passing Chalabi's impending government. Bush interrupted him. We're not choosing anybody as Iraq's leader. That's for the Iraqi people to decide. A few days later, Paul Wolfowitz, who had not been at the earlier meeting, mentioned in passing uh, the, the Chalabi group, and once again, Bush said, this is about democracy. He had nothing for or against Chalabi, but the United States was not going to, this is a quote, put its thumb on the scale. 
Right? So you had a division inside of the, America, of the US government, again, both, both sides believing in the wisdom of going to war in the first place, but having very different ideas about what the next step was going to be. Um, and I think it's, it's worthwhile to go back to that discussion and ask, what was the alternative? Because I've also heard more recently that the 2010 election, in the green room, Doug was mentioning this, the 2010 election was so, so tightly contested, there are some parallels, kind of analog to our own tightly contested election in 2000. It was so close, right, that there was a lot of moving to and fro. And it was going to be very, very hard to build a, build a stable government out of that. Um, what's the alternative? What, what might have been done otherwise? Or do we look back on this and say, in spite of everything that's happened, Aretha, you laid out very well, you know, kind of what, you know, what has happened along the way, could we have avoided this? And what do we do now to ensure that we don't go backwards uh, even further? Um, so those are the things, those were the two of the questions that I had. And again, they're just questions. I don't have the answer. Uh, can a democracy in Iraq survive? Can it survive now? Is now the time? Or is it still too soon? I, I brought, I didn't show you, but I, I just finished reviewing Bob Gates's book. Uh, and there's a passage in that book where he talks about his frustration with members of Congress, particularly members of Congress, pressuring him, why have the Iraqi politicians not reconciled? Why have they not negotiated a, on debathification? Why have they not negotiated on oil revenues? Why haven't they made these difficult political decisions? And Gates, with some frustration, says, how can you expect these people in a nascent state who have no, who have no experience with democracy to succeed when you people, you people who are questioning me, can't even pass a budget, right? How, who are you to lecture the Iraqi people on this? All right. Um, again, it's a, it's a good question. Was it too soon? Might there have been a better way, an interim step? Uh, or again, is it just an academic discussion because there's nothing, it can't be undone. Um, one last point. I hear a lot of times people say that the rationale for the war in Iraq changed over time. And it shifted from the concern about weapons of mass destruction and, and linkages to terrorism to promoting democracy. That was the, and the, the Bush administration latched upon that uh, justification only after the weapons rationale fell apart. I've never believed that. I've always thought, and I think there's evidence to back this up, that George W. Bush was, in fact, always committed to democracy, not just because of the story that I recounted from Kaplan's book, but because of public statements he made before the war started before the weapons rationale fell apart. This was driven by his fervent belief that democracy was right for Iraq and that the end result would be good for the United States, good for the Iraqi people, and good for the region. Was he wrong to think that? Was he wrong to think that at the time? Right? That's, that, to me, is the question. And again, I don't have an answer to that. So in the interest of keeping the discussion going, I hope, and among ourselves, and then all of you join in, uh, I'll close with that, with two questions and no answers. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for that, Chris. Um, let me, I could 
Bogart the podium here, but I won't. Um, and I'll leave Chris's question sort of dangling out there as we field questions from the audience as well. Normal ground rules apply. Please wait for the microphone. Wait for me to see past these Klieg lights. Um, I'll call on you. Please identify yourself. Short questions, and uh, let's you go. Want to, do you want to start with just, is there anything that I raised you want them to have a chance right, to respond? Let's lead to, I mean, I all right, all right, all right. You can, you can moderate that. Lingering. Yeah. All right, uh, lingering. Gentlemen, lingering. Right over there, the blue shirt. Is there a microphone? Yeah. Yes, there's a microphone, but there's a, an obstacle, of course. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, Pat Spann, just representing myself. Um, I noticed that, um, you know, I hate, hate to agree with anything that Vice President Biden thought up, but I noticed that you guys never mentioned the Kurds. And, you know, it's like, are we, I've always thought that uh, the breakup of the Ottoman Empire creating Iraq was sort of artificial, as one of the speakers mentioned. The, is, are we, are we seeing the beginning of a Kurdistan? Are, are we, um, you know, it seems like, I mean, basically the ISIS people seem that don't think much of national borders. And I asked this question at a seminar a couple of days ago on Syria, and they said, oh, no, all the Syrian players except for ISIS believe in nation-state borders <clears throat> remaining as they are. I just find that, um, you know, we're, we're reaping the results of the way the English carved up, the English and the French carved up the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire, and it's, None of you guys mentioned anything about the Kurds who seem to be off doing their own thing there. Are we seeing the beginning of a Kurdistan, finally? And, uh, so the, and, the, and the, the breakdown of these artificial right, nation states right. so from the Ottomans. The Kurds' identity politics separate from beneath or above national borders. Does anybody who wants to lead off on that? You want to start? Yeah, just do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Too crazy otherwise. Well, the reason I focus on uh, Sunni-Shia, uh, the so-called Sunni-Shia conflict, is because it is the main issue today. Um, and, and also because if we assume that the Kurds at some point will go to have their own state, Iraq will still exist because... Iraq has a majority Arab population, around 80%. And it could endure uh, the separation of Kurdistan. That doesn't mean that this separation is going to take place anytime soon. Today, there is also another tension between uh, the regional government of Kurdistan and Baghdad about Kurdistan budget. So, uh, Kurdistan government uh, expect to get 17% of the Iraqi budget. The Iraqi government said that we give them 11% because they, are, they have their own oil exportations and their revenues that cover the rest of the budget. So there is this type of uh, discussions going on between the two sides. Uh, the relationship between Erbil and Baghdad is very confusing because constitutionally is uh, defined as a federal relationship, but comparing to any other uh, federal e experience in the world, including the United States, it's more like it's more than uh, it's more like a confederal relationship. So, Erbil has autonomy in terms of even its foreign policy, its security. Um, now they they decided that they could 
contract uh, oil comp foreign oil companies and export oil. They just recently uh, established their own Kurdish pipeline that goes through Turkey. So there is all this ongoing conflict uh, about what type of the relationship between the center and uh, the Kurdish region. The problem, the only thing that prevents Kurdistan from uh, declaring its own state today is that although they, they have their own revenues through oil exportation, but still the size of the budget they get from Baghdad is much larger than what they could generate by their own exportation. And therefore they have to go this uh, process of compromises with, with the central government in order to find a common ground about, about these, these issues. Sure. Um, I think what we're seeing now in the, the KRG is the Kurdish government testing the limits of what this means, how far can they push, what does this, as, as Harith said, this kind of quasi-autonomy mean, how do we explore it, and is this good for us? I think, I think essentially they're going to push it as far as they can within the current limits and see where that gets them. Now, I'm, I'm on the record in print as saying, I don't think that a independent Kurdish state is viable. It'll be landlocked, it'll be surrounded by powerful neighbors. Um, the Kurds are in a much better position having Baghdad able to advocate for them in Ankara than they would be just a tiny nation of Kurds trying to interface with Ankara. Um, but that's that's my opinion. Maybe that's not shared by the Kurds, and we'll see where we'll see where they are um, in the coming years as they develop their own revenue stream. As as Sarith alluded to, right now they really don't have their own independent revenue stream. They're moving towards that. They're developing it. But today, the the stubborn fact is that the KRG exists off the money that they get from Baghdad, which essentially, you know, at, at the end of the day, comes from Basra. So. KRG lives off Basra oil revenues today. It's not to say that may not change in the future, but that's the stubborn truth today. More questions right down here in the front. Thank you. Uh, Mike Kurtzig, who worked on the Iraqi food situation in the early 90s. I'm trying to figure out your statement. Democracy is the worst system of government except for everything else. Right. What do you think was behind Bush's, I think, fairly ignorant ideas that somehow democracy would flower in an area which has never had democracy before? You talked about the democratic tradition. There is no democratic tradition in, in this Arab world, I guess you'd say. I don't know about the Islamic world, but the Arab world. What was behind th th this, this idea that somehow his, uh, he would be the one to bring democracy to the area? Thank you. Um, Far be it for me to delve into the depths of George W. Bush's uh, thoughts on this matter, but let me speculate. Um, it's not entirely unique to him, of course. Uh, recall, what was it Wilson said? He was going to teach the Mexicans to elect good men, right? This is not a new idea. Um, and I do think that what actually happened with the Rumsfeld plan, again, presuming that that story is, is accurate, I, I sense that it's probably reasonably accurate. The other, the other thing that, that the Rumsfeld plan ran afoul of was not just George Bush, but with the Iraqi people, 
was that the the people that uh, the Pentagon had anointed as the caretaker government, not a democratically elected government, but the caretaker government, had no popular support or not enough popular support in Iraq. And of course, by the time that Ahmed Chalabi stood for election, his party basically ran all by himself and he didn't win enough votes to even win a, win a seat in parliament. So, uh, and I do think there's a broader lesson there as well. The United States doesn't have a terrific track record of picking winners and losers in foreign countries' elections. Um, and I don't think it's a knock on us per se. I think any, any outside power is going to have a difficult time. Um, one of, the, one of the great strengths of our country is also one of its weaknesses, which is that people can come here and make a case for why they are the representatives of the true wishes of the name your country people. Happens a lot. It's not a new problem. I wrote about, you know, the Bay of Pigs in Cuba in 1961. There were Cuban exiles who swore up and down. They were the ones. And I know they believe that to be true, and a lot of Kennedy administration officials believe it to be true. It's not a new problem. So I think, you know, it's, it's a little too easy to lay the blame at George Bush for being rather naive about democracy in a country that hadn't had it or, you know, never really had it. Um, but he's not alone. So. Anybody else want to jump in on Iraq? Okay. Let me try to pull Chris's questions back out now that I buried them 20 minutes ago. Um, and Chris has the very interesting counterfactual, what could have gone differently, uh, which I like. But let's try to make it a little more contemporary, right? Um, Doug, you talked a lot about ISIS or ISIL or whatever we ought to call it. Um, and obviously they blow people up and kill people and uh, recruit young men to go blow people up and kill people. And you talked about Iraqi politics. What is ISIS, effect you know, and obviously there were 2006, 2007, 2005, uh, blowing stuff up had profound political implications in Iraq. It was, it, it was not sort of violence isolated from politics. It created massive new political realities. Is ISIS a political force in Iraq today? Is it causing these sorts of spirals of, um, you know, what Harith talked about, this sort of victimhood, and we have these sort of uh, uh, disloyal opposition people who are blowing up people of my group. So talk a little bit about ISIS's role intended or otherwise in shaping Iraqi politics. And to, to, to ask Karith a little bit about this, you made what to me, to my sort of liberal ears, was a very uh, sort of blissed out liberal denunciation of identity politics, the politics of victimhood, uh, a sort of imagined communities, you know, we're making up all of these groups. And uh, I wanted to ask you, are the, are, you talked about how they were sort of outgrowths of political structures that were created in 2003. But are identity politics in Iraq today irresistible? Are there organic forces bubbling up? Are there sort of cross-cutting interests, cross-cutting constituencies that hold a hope of breaking apart what otherwise seem to be very powerful uh, incentives, pushing people uh, toward these sorts of identity politics, a politics of victimhood? Um, or are there changes to these structural conditions that you talked about a little bit, um, created in 2003, that could help uh, dampen uh, the otherwise, I think, quite powerful uh, incentives to play the, the identity politics card? So I don't know whether those, either of those are provocative, but if so, please jump in. 
I'll, I guess I'll start. I, I think in a in a state, I think we have to remember where we came from and how longstanding the fragility of Iraq is. Iraq is a state that, for the last thirty years, experienced you know a very intense war with Iran from nineteen. 80 to 1988, not long thereafter, you know, decides to invade Kuwait, gets kicked out of there, and therefore then lives under worldwide sanctions for the next 11, 12 years. And then it has their government overthrown by the United States and lives under occupation slash civil war slash terrorism for the following 10. It's an incredibly fragile state. So there is no one under the, you know, no one younger than me who remembers a time when Iraq was peaceful, stable, um, you know, when you could live a normal life um, in, in that country. So I think that's, that's very important to remember is how longstanding the fragility is. In these fragile situations, I think almost anything can have a political effect and in the context of Iraq have a sectarian effect. So. Is ISIS a political force in Iraq? No, it's not a political force. There's not, there's, you know, it's less than some fraction of 1% that supports what's going on. Now, is, it a, is ISIS a force that has political consequences? Absolutely. You know, they are removing Sunni moderates, um, you know, which have been in short supply lately. Um, and it, those that do stand up are immediately targeted by ISIS as something that, that stands against their program, and they assassinate them in their context of then proceeding to blow up large quantities of Iraqi civilians who are selected by ISIS because they're in Shia neighborhoods. So no, they're not a political force, but they're a force that has political consequences by their actions. Um, I was thinking... Uh, about what Harith said and about the, the rise of sectarianism after 2003. And I'm just not sure that that was avoidable because of the actions of the prior regime. You know, you had the Hussein, the Saddam Hussein regime that had suppressed Shia identity for understandable reasons of its own um, in the, the 10 years at least prior to that. It had been some time since there had been expressions of Shia identity had been allowed. So now the government is all is overthrown, and now there are huge Ashura demonstrations and parades and celebrations going on. And if you've never seen it or never seen pictures of it, it's a rather intense experience. People, you know. and so if you're not part of that, um, that's going to feel somewhat hostile to you. And you're watch if you're an Iraqi Sunni or. Uh, you know, non-affiliated or, or whatever else watching this, you're going to be reminded that, well, I'm, I'm, I don't know what I, you know, I've never really thought of myself as a Sunni, but I'm certainly not that. <laughs> um, and that's going to then reinforce the, the identity that you do have. Um, and again, so I don't think this initial burst of sectarianism on the part of the Iraqi Shia um, was intended as a political movement. Um, but it immediately had political consequences, I think. Um, and so I think that this is the lesson to be drawn from these very fragile situations is that actions have political consequences, even if not intended this way, simply because the situation is so unstable. So uh, is uh, ISIS is a political force in Iraq? Um, they are not mainstream political force, but 
as as long as they have uh, uh, bases that support them, uh, they they can they can uh, transfer the, their military power into political force. But the thing is that ISIS is not interested about Iraq or Iraqi politics. Iraq, in their worldview and ideology, is only part of the Islamic nation, mm-hmm. and uh, for the, uh, for them, they identify themselves not as a political group. They call themselves the Islamic State. So even when they deal with the other insurgent groups in Syria today, they want these insurgent groups, especially the Islamist one, to accept their power because they are the state. So uh, in, in their vision, Iraq, uh, in, uh, in, the, in its current borders, they don't recognize it. They don't recognize Iraq or Syria or Lebanon. For, uh, the same apply for the sectarian Shia militia. Uh, one interesting thing happened in the Syrian conflict, and it is uh, very much related to the Iraqi conflict, uh, is that in a Shia shrine in Damascus, uh, there were Shia militias sent there to protect that shrine. And there were Salafist jihadist groups, Qaeda and its alike, trying to attack that place. And I, I thought, in this battle that was taking place in, 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 that, in this area in Damascus, the whole sectarian conflict was summarized symbolically. So you have the transnational Shia groups and transnational Sunni groups both don't recognize the current borders and they think that the real identity is a sectarian identity. So ISIS doesn't concern itself with Iraqi politics. Uh, I, I, I tend to distinguish between democracy and nation building. And I think nation policy, uh, building is possible without democracy. Uh, in the sense that if, if we use the famous definition of the nation that Bendit Anderson suggested, the nation is an imagined community so you have a nation when the people are able to imagine it. It's not, it's not only a matter of inventing traditions, uh, national ceremonies, but to make the nation as a daily event that people feel connected to. And this hasn't happened in Iraq because of, uh, not, not because Iraq is an artificial state, I think every state has an element of artificiality. I, I prefer to distinguish between a state that went through a successful nation-building process and a state that failed to have a nation-building process. Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon are, kind, are examples of this type of states. Iraq failed in its nation-building because of the exclusionary politics, because of the, of the state was established when it, when it was established in 1921, it was more driven by foreign compromises than indigenous uh, dynamics. And at the same time, it wasn't a total failure. In, in the 50s in Iraq, we, we had a national economy. We had a national currency. We had a national curriculum. Um, 
it's something else, our evaluation of these things, but we had them, we had a national army. There was a sense of Iraqi nationalism developing. So could we have the situation that we are dealing with now, could it have been avoided? To some extent, yes. Because if you establish a political system that define citizens according to their communal, uh, sectarian, and ethnic identities, you actually institutionalize these identities and give the incentives for political elite to play the identity politics card. And in this case, it's not just us and them, it's us against them. You create a context, a context in which compromises between these antagonistic identities is impossible. So what could have been done and still can be done is making changes within the political system that de-emphasize sectarian identities. For example, the electoral system. Uh, the electoral system was one based on a proportional representation. The ones who created this electoral system had in their mind the, a philosophy or a narrative of Iraq that it is divided into sectarian groups and each sectarian group has to be represented within the government. And that is not only about the parliament. It, it became uh, a tradition within the executive branch that if you have the president as a Kurdish, you have to have two deputies, one Sunni and one Shia. If the prime minister is Shia, you have to have two deputies. I mean, you help politicians to view the political game through these lenses. If the electoral system is, is, is changed to emphasize, for example, the small constituencies, the districts where the the candidates are coming from the same area and the people know them and it is a competition about a program and about perfor performance, you might make some change. I'm not, I'm not idealistic. I'm not, I'm not saying that identity politics are going to disappear. But I'm saying you need to make changes within the system to de-emphasize these, these politics. That's great. Right there in the middle, a gentleman in the blue shirt. I think so. I can see. There we go. Mike's heading your way. Uh, Ken Meyer, World Docs. Uh, if democracy is a key to stability in Iraq, I'm assuming the speakers uh, believe that the election should be as free and fair and open as possible. But I have the impression from the talk about debathification that Baathists are not allowed to participate in the elections as a party. Uh, an election where the, perhaps the most popular party is excluded is the sort of election you have in a country under occupation if Iraq wants to uh, claim to be unoccupied today and have regained their sovereignty, shouldn't they let, let the Baathist Party participate in the elections? Well, if it would be the most popular party today. Uh, yeah, but, uh, I, I if, don't know that they'd be the most popular. What about uh, excluding various political parties uh, from elections, implications intended or otherwise? I think, I mean, I disagree. I, I think the, the Baath Party is not popular it became popular when it was uh, helped by the debathification processes to transfer it into Sunni party. So some Sunni population feel a bit identified with the Ba'ath party 
because in the narrative that was dominant after 2003, there was a process of sunification of the Ba'ath Party. Uh, also, the rebathification measures mainly targeted Sunni Ba'athists, and it was, they were applied very selectively by the government. Ahmed Chalabi was leading the rebathification committee, and Maliki was a prominent figure in, 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 in the rebathification committee. So another reason is this selective way of applying debatification. Um, uh, I, I recognize that democracy has its own problems. Uh, it, it, it is sometimes messy. I will give you just an example. I mean, we all now following the news in Iraq and the conflict and what's happening there. And the Iraqi parliament failed to convene many times to discuss the current crisis. But last week it managed to convene because the lawmakers decided to pass a law that grants them a huge pensions when they leave the parliament. <laughs> so, and this is, this is another uh, consequence of identity politics because the political elite wants you to focus on, this, on these issues. They don't want people to focus on economic problems, on uh, public service, on infrastructure, on education. They want these to be uh, secondary matters. The priority has to be the community because the, this elite failed to make any significant change in the lives of Iraqis, and therefore they prefer to play the identity card. Can I come back to something that's been tossed around on this the point that, that Harith just made, because earlier Doug said that he was very skeptical that there were, that that the sectarianism could have could have ever been avoided. I think it's understandable why people are skeptical of that. Harith, you have much, you are much more. You do disagree. You think there was a there was a possibility, and I and I there's another episode which I had in my notes which I didn't talk about, but there are two different ways to read this. There were people Iraqi leading political figures who were saying in 2003 and 2004, they were committed to a pluralistic society. Now I've written about this episode before and I always interpreted it as self-serving and being a little you know, disingenuous, but maybe that's, that's not fair. Um, fairly, fairly famous episode, President Bush had a um, interview with Tim Russert on Meet the Press. Uh, this was in February of 2004. And Russert asked him, again, reflecting this sort of skepticism about the, the unity of the, of the Iraqi polity, and says, uh, you know, is this, is this going to hold together? And, and Bush said, They're not gonna, they are going to hold together. They're not going to become, an, uh, for example, an extremist regime, an Islamic extremist regime. Um, he said, because, and, he, and he believed this so strongly because people had told him that was not going to be the case. They were committed to a pluralistic society. Now, the three people were, and this is directly a quote, right here in the Oval Office, Bush explains to, to Russert, I sat down with Mr. Pachachi and Chalabi and Al-Hakim, people that have made the firm commitment that they want a constitution eventually written that recognizes minority rights and freedom of religion. And my only point to you, he concluded, these people are committed to a pluralistic society. So that's what they told him. Now, again, I wrote about this. And I always presumed they were being self-serving and not entirely uh, honest. Am I wrong? 
were they committed to a pluralistic society? Because somebody, somewhere along the line, which you admit, Harith, moved away from that vision and in, in po, you know, kind of codified the sectarianism. Was there anyone in 2003 that actually was committed to a pluralistic society? Could that, could that, could we get that back? Is there a possibility of that? <laughs> I think all Iraqi politicians are committed to pluralistic society as long as they govern that society. <laughs> <laughs> Here too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, so I don't think it's a, uh, a matter of pers personalities. I, I think it's a matter of the system. If the system was shaped in a way that uh, helped uh, making this inclusive, pluralistic democracy, uh, all, all the players would have worked ac according to the rules of the system. One important point that uh, many uh, neglect or when talking about Iraq's democracy, I mean, uh, is the economic system. It's not only the identity politics. Right. Right. In Iraq, Iraq is a renter state. 95% right. of the governmental budget is coming from oil. 65% of the GDP is coming from oil. What does that mean? That means the elite that has the power will control this revenue and will use that revenue to create constituencies, to use patronage politics to control civil society. The society is increasingly dependent on the state. Even now, when, Iraq, when some Iraqis go to protest, one of their demands, we want uh, wadifa. Wadifa in the Iraqi uh, dialect means governmental job. It's our right. Because the, in addition to that, because of the instability, because of the bureaucracy, because uh, the, the poor infrastructure, the private sector is very weak in Iraq. There is no real private economy. The state, again, is the main player in the economy in, in Iraq. And you have, again, an elite that, has, that is growing in power and resources and is able to control civil society, to subjugate institutions. And as a result of that, what's happening today in Iraq is institutions are increasingly weakened but patronage politics are increasingly becoming stronger and stronger. Well, we've taken a turn for the pessimistic. Uh, <laughs> very, very quickly, to directly, to directly address the question. I mean, you, you hate to use Nazi analogies anytime, but I think you're kind of forced to in this case because debathification was clearly modeled after denazification. Um, I think we can agree about two things. I think we can all agree that the Ba'ath Party was a bad thing. I think we can all agree it wasn't as bad as the Nazi Party. Now, <laughs> then, then beyond that, it's going to get ambiguous. You know, it's, it's, is the Ba'ath 25% as bad as the Nazis or 75% as bad as the Nazis? And I don't mean to make light of this. I mean, it really does come to your question. Um, none of us have any problem with Germany running a democratic system in which it's illegal for the Nazi Party to exist. You know, how much does that precedent, you know, how applicable is that precedent to Iraq? Um, and I, I don't have an answer to that. You know, the current, clearly the CPA decided it was extremely applicable um, and applied it as such. You know, were the Iraqis someday to decide on their own that they no longer think that's the case and, you know, remove that clause from their laws, then, you know, that's that's their decision. But I don't think that, you know, we, we do have precedent for, 
suppressing a pre-existing authoritarian totalitarian party. Um, and none of us seem to think that Germany is any less of a democracy for that. Let's take two more questions and then uh, clear the deck. So gentleman right there, and then you two duke it out. Who wants the, uh, <laughs> who wants the final one? We'll take them both. What the heck? <laughs> Magnanimous. Uh, Doug Brooks, um, uh, consultant on stability operations. And, and I think the panel has been excellent in terms of answering the questions that were brought up by the, the title of this program. But I guess the point I'd like to know is, okay, does the U.S. have a role in Iraq now? Um, and, and I'd like to hear from everyone here. I think Doug's already uh, talked about, you know, weapons and things like that. But I'd like to hear from, from uh, Dr. Sasan and Preble. And two, if it does have a role, exactly, you know, three or four things the U.S. should be doing. There, and then we'll go one, two, and then we'll go down the line. But let's, Chris, let's get them all. Okay, all right. That was your question. That was it. That was it. Okay, all right. Our role, our interest, and okay. all right. All right. sir, do you want to pile on? Okay, great. So let's take those. Our, our interest well, and our role. Well, let me go first because um, I I do think that Doug laid it out very well, and and uh, I I wouldn't object to either of those ideas. First of all to the extent that the Iraqi government needs uh, military uh, technology hardware to, to level the playing field first against the terrorists and also against its neighbors, especially Iran, I would not object to that, uh, with the caveat, of course, that sometimes those sorts of arms sales go badly, but I think uh, all their factors being equal, that's a, that's a risk worth taking. So I would, I would endorse that. The other point I, I agree with generally, but I, again, I go back to I think we have limited leverage. I, I mean. It, it is going to be difficult to convince the neighboring states of uh, Iraq's good intentions, but probably worth attempting to do so. It's a fairly low-cost, uh, low-risk uh, strategy for the United States. We still have good relations with many of the countries in the region, and trying to mend, repair, improve relations between Iraq and its neighbors is not such a bad thing. So I would, I would endorse that, with again, with the caveat that you know I, I think we have to have reasonable expectations about how how successful that'll be. Um, you know, my, my limited experience in the region, my limited personal experience in the region, um, uh, I, I will never forget uh, the experience of sitting with a quite senior Saudi official uh, railing at great lengths about uh, Maliki personally and the, the deep animus that is felt uh, by, by shocking, shocking, um, uh, and I suspect that, that that goes in in other places as well. Uh, but again, not a not a bad idea for the United States to try to to try to help mend that. Curtis, what do we need? And how do we get it? So, uh, I still think the U.S. has a, a leverage in Iraq. It's not as strong as the Iranian leverage, uh, but at least in terms of the perception. Uh, Iraqis still think that the U.S. is able to play an important role. Uh, an advantage the U.S. has is it is viewed as a, a neutral party. Nobody is ident identifying the U.S. with a single party or a single community, which gives the U.S. policy a, a better chance to, um, to promote uh, compacts and deals among the uh, different factions. And as I said that just uh, in the last uh, few weeks, many Iraqi politicians uh, visit Washington. They try to promote their agenda by being in Washington. They try to 
sell their narrative to Washington. So everybody is convinced that the U.S. has uh, a strong say in Iraq. Uh, whether you like it or not, also Iraq is still significant uh, for the U.S. Uh, foreign interest, significant for the Middle East. Iraq is, go uh, by uh, 2035, Iraq is going to provide the energy market with 45% of its increasing demands for oil. Uh, Iraq, if it, if it was stabilized, uh, it will serve very much as a buffer zone between the Saudis and the Iranians, uh, pushing into uh, solutions for uh, major problems in the region. I, I, I think the Iraqi problem and the Syrian problems are interconnected and uh, at least for the regional players, they, they view them as part of their wider uh, conflict. So for all these reasons, I, th I think the U.S. should be, should keep in, engaged in Iraq, should, should not support one figure or one party, should uh, try to support new deals, deals that handle the problems that we are facing today, like sectarianism, uh, tension between Baghdad and Erbil, uh, and to motivate the Iraqi elite to, to reach institutional solutions, not solutions based on uh, short-term interest, institutional solutions that can guarantee uh, uh, a system that is viable, workable, inclusive, and uh, stable. Sure, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll add, um, you know, I stand by my previous two statements. I think our, <laughs> our interests are you know, definitely in, in, in weapon sales. And again, as, as again, Brett McGurk said, what, what we get with weapon sales is long-term influence. If you sell them M1 tanks, you, they then will be, a, any country, not just Iraq, is then reliant on you for the long-term, for the spare parts for that, for the ammunition for that. And implicit in that sale is that could be turned off at some point. So. That's a long-term interest of the United States. Um, I think the United States continues to have leverage in Iraq because all three of the subgroups, and I don't like you know, Sunni Shia Kurd any more than anyone else, but it is, it is a useful shorthand, um, seem to think that the United States is on their side. You know? And I think all three are mistaken, but um, <laughs> you know, the Shia think that the United States is on their side because we support the current government. Um, they ignore that we support the current government because it's the government that got selected because of the procedures that are set up. But nonetheless, <laughs> we support the current government. Um, the Sunni seem to think the United States is on their side because in the big picture of you know, sectarian in the region, we are clearly on the side of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states um, as opposed to Iran. You, know, you can't say very many things about our policy in, in the region, but that we're still pretty much opposed to Iran is, is a pretty safe statement. Um, and of course, the Kurds think that we're on their side because we've been, you know, long-term friendly with them. Um, I think they overstate just how much friendly we are with them and what we'd be willing to expend um, in in their terms. But nonetheless, all three groups think that the United States is on their side, and we continue to have influence with all three groups because of that. Um, talking about integration in the region, I think mostly that's going to have to sort itself out. Like our our influence is real, but very very limited. Um, to make that happen. Um, frankly, I think the most um, realistic chance for rapprochement between Iraq and its neighboring states will happen through other institutions. I'm particularly optimistic about um, the use of OPEC 
as a institution, as young Saudi and Iraqi technocrats meet each other on, under the auspices of that institution and have to work through um, hydrocarbon issues under the auspices of OPEC. I think that's probably the, the best long-term, and make no mistake, that's a 30-, 40-year plan, um, the best long-term uh, hope for rapprochement between those two states. Sir, I'm sorry. Uh, it's 1.30 on the dot. Uh, <laughs> let me thank all of you for coming out. Please join me in thanking our panelists and join us upstairs for Santa.